Titus chapter 3, 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Hey, good morning. It's great to, to be uh, with you guys. Uh, one of the things that I've really like lamented uh, throughout this time of quarantine is just the fact that not only were we kept from gathering together, but we were also kept from really, for many of us, just using our gifts uh, on Sundays. Uh, so we're grateful uh, for God's provision in this place and just this, 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 this time, this space to gather so that uh, we can uh, do this. Gather on the Lord's Day to remember the Lord's work uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've got some people that are with us this morning that have actually uh, joined us uh, during quarantine uh, who are with us for uh, the first time in person. And so welcome, you guys. Uh, glad that you are here. Um, we're started late, so let's just go ahead and get right into it. Go ahead and grab your Bible uh, and turn to Titus chapter 3. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this space. Uh, thank you for uh, just being so amazing and lovely and wonderful. And you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our uh, celebration. And so, God, we just give uh, this moment our humble offering uh, to you, our janky little service uh, in this wonderful backyard. Uh, would you just have your way with us and would you... Um, just speak to us a comforting and challenging word that you might uh, mold us more uh, into the image of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So look, in last week's service, uh, our online service, uh, Oscar Navarro uh, did a great job of sort of bringing us back into the book of Titus. Right? He brought us back into the book of Titus, which is where we were at in the beginning of the year. And we sort of took a break from that when quarantine started uh, to kind of uh, tackle some issues uh, that we were all sort of struggling with and wrestling with with our faith. And so we talked about uh, what it means to have faith over fear. And then we transitioned from there into some of the characteristics and attributes of, of God, uh, why he's worthy of our worship, why he's worthy of our trust, uh, why he's someone that we can lean on uh, in these just perpetually changing uh, times. Uh, but you know, our normal flow and rhythm is to go through books of the Bible. And so we dove back into uh, the book of Titus. And, you know, like I said, Oscar did a great job of bringing us back last week. Uh, but I want you guys to hear uh, a little bit of my heart again as to why I wanted us to go through this book in the first place. The book of Titus is the only New Testament book that is written specifically for the context of church planting, right? Which is the starting of new churches, you know? And that's relevant to us because we're a relatively new church. And so Paul is writing to Titus in this letter to encourage him, to teach him and instruct him on how to establish health in these new churches. 
these churches that they planted together. Paul and Titus planted these churches together in the island of Crete. And so he's sort of writing this letter back to Titus, who he left there on the island, to tell him, you know, hey, here's how you can help these churches, churches continue to grow. And when I say grow, I'm not just talking about in width, uh, in breadth, but I'm talking about in depth as well, right? And so just like Paul's heart, which was to encourage Titus and not just starting new churches, but making sure that those new churches were spiritually healthy. Look, that's my heart and prayer for us, King's Cross. That's my heart and prayer for us, that we would be more than just this new social club, but that we would be disciples of Jesus, that we would be followers of him, followers in the fullest sense of that word. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. And so for that reason, it behooves us to study the book of Titus so that we can learn from Paul. We can learn a thing or two from him about what it means for us to be a healthy church, what it means for us to be faithful Christians that bring glory to God and do good to others because we're just living out the transforming grace of God. And so the big subtitle or banner of this series has been that, Grace Lived Out. Grace lived out because we believe that the transforming grace of God is not just something that we're to bottle up inside, but it's something that needs to spill out, something that needs to overflow into our daily lives, something that is put on display, something that is lived out. And so, look, I'm, I'm telling you all that because uh, in Titus now, uh, there's a shift as we go into chapter 3 this morning. Chapter one and two was more about, more or less about how we should conduct ourselves within the church, right? What should our leaders look like? What should our, um, what, how should we uh, treat one another? Uh, and then at the end of chapter two and into chapter three, it transitions into how we conduct ourselves in the view of a surrounding culture that may or may not believe what we believe what it looks like to live for the good of others. And so I'll just read the passage and then we'll dig into it and split it into four parts, all right? So we got just two verses this morning. Paul says in verse one, writing to Titus, uh, encouraging him on what to do with these new churches, Paul says, remind them. Now, really quick, I want you to notice something with that phrase, remind them. It tells us, that what he's about to say is not something new, right? It's not something new. And you see, look, this is ground that we've covered before, but, 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 but this is something, what he's teaching them is something that they need to be reminded of. It's something they've already learned but need to be reminded of. You see, that's, what, that, that's kind of one of the marks of what it means to be one of God's people. God's people are a people that need to be reminded again and again and again. That's, that's my job as your pastors to remind you again and again and again the truths of God. Why he's worthy of our worship. What it means to live in light of the gospel. And so, and so Paul says to Titus, look, you got to remind them. <laughs> remind them what it looks like to live out their faith. He says, remind them to be submissive <coughs> to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to, uh, to be ready for every good work, to speak 
evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So, <clears throat> point number one from this verse, uh, we see right there in the first phrase, we're to submit to authority in an anti-authority age. He says right there in verse one, remind them <coughs> to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Now that's not controversial at all these days, right? <laughs> so how do we understand a verse like this? How do we apply it in our day, in our age, in our context? And what do we do when we have like abuses of authority, right? Because that happens, right? We, like many of us have experienced that. And so like, what do we do in those situations? Now, some of you, some of you here, you grew up and some of you like streaming online, you grew up through uh, the, the 60s and 70s, like the anti-authority uh, age, like the hippie movement of back then, right? Now, those of us, many of us here, uh, did not grow up with that. We grew up through the 80s and 90s, and so we didn't, we didn't have anything uh, gnarly like the Vietnam War that, they, like in our sheltered childhoods. All we had was the anti-authority movement of like punk rock music, right? But now, even now, there's a lot of anti-authority talk going on. A lot of anti-authority talk regarding COVID and race relations in our nation with all sorts of nuances and complications involved in those conversations. And so how do we wrestle through this? How do we make sense of this verse in light of all that? Now, the first thing that we need to establish in this verse is we need to understand that left to ourselves, we all have a natural aversion to authority. We all have a natural version to authority. Uh, <coughs> we see this in the very first pages of Scripture. Eve with Adam's headship, Adam with God's headship. Now, uh, with sin in our very nature, every single one of us since Genesis 1 and 2, every single one of us from birth follows that same pattern of having an aversion of authority. Like every parent knows this, right? <coughs> every parent sees this firsthand. One of the... One of the uh, uh, words that my one-year-old probably hears me say the most is the word no, <clears throat> right? More than any of my kids, he probably is testing that the most. He always tests that limit. But here in verse 1, it says, remind them, remind these Christians to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Now, now. <clears throat> Here in verse 1, this idea of being sort of under the authorities and rulers wasn't just talking about scriptural authority. It wasn't just talking about church authority. It was talking about like governmental and political authority. And you need to understand that the Cretans, the, 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 the residents, uh, the citizens on the island of Crete, where Paul is writing, where Titus is pastoring these, uh, helping these churches get started, the Cretans, they hated governing authority. Their culture was like a do whatever you want to whoever you want type of culture. Crime was high. It hardly ever uh, got punished. But this authority thing is so much more than a Cretan problem. It's a human problem. We see this command 
to respect authority repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. In Romans 13, Paul talks about how all governmental authority is in some form placed there by God to restrain evil and to promote good. And so we should be subject to that because to resist that authority, it says, is in, in some sense to resist God. And then in 1 Peter, uh, Peter talks about how Christians should be subject to all earthly authorities, even the emperor, he says, who was uh, this guy who happened to be persecuting Christians at the time. So how do we make sense of that? What does he say? Why does he say that if the emperor's persecuting Christians? Why is this idea of our relationship to authority an important quality of a Christian? And that's because to a certain degree, it is not the Christian's greatest concern how the governing authorities are to govern. Now, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be any of our concern. But the reason that Paul is harping on this here is because to a certain degree, it is not the Christian's greatest concern, all-consuming concern, how the governing authorities govern. Our greatest concern should be to display the transforming grace of God in our lives. Our greatest concern is to live holy lives and to call other sinners to find new life and to follow Christ with us. So our citizenship is not in this world, the Bible says. Our citizenship is not in this world. It's found in another world, the world to come. We are only strangers and aliens here, exiles. Our testimony and our witness to others, that is the greater issue. That is the greatest issue in this situation. And so he says there in verse 1, be obedient, respect this. Now, now are, is there ever a, a time and place where we should disobey authorities? The answer to that is yes. Yes, there is a time and place for that. And the, 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 the situation for that is if the government ever asks you to do something that God forbids, or if the government is, is asking you to, telling you uh, or forbidding us from doing something that God commands. If you're ever in that situation, then you go with God. You go with God, the greater and higher authority, above the governing authorities, above the political authorities. We see this actually in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and John are whipped and flogged for preaching the gospel. And then they're ordered, they're released and ordered to preach no more. And then a few verses down from there in, in Acts 5, 42, it says, Every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching, preaching Jesus as Christ. And so look, there is a place and a time for that. In this other instance, in Acts, I think it's around Acts 25, you have uh, Paul being imprisoned uh, and, and, and he's being falsely imprisoned and accused of stirring up division and dissension. And in that situation, he's like, hey, look, put me on trial. If you can find anything wrong uh, against me, then go ahead, like, like I'll appeal to Caesar. If it leads to my death, then like that's fine. 
But if you can't find anything against me, like then let me go. And so, and so there's, there, there, there's nuance there, right? Like depending on the situation. But, but what we do see is that for Paul, his witness before a watching world was important in terms of his relationship uh, to authority. But he was not going to let that authority keep him from preaching the gospel of Christ. I was going to stop Peter and John either. Now, I want to be clear here. Just a quick note on abusive authority. Abusive authority. Authority that silences the voice of the voiceless, that takes advantage of the weak, should always be challenged. Should always be challenged. God has a special place in his heart for those in those categories. So abuse of the authority should always be challenged. Christians were actually the ones who conspired against Hitler. Christians were the ones who led the abolition of slavery. You see, there's a difference between someone who like aggressively sort of flexes up against authority and challenges it uh, and there's, uh, versus somebody who humbly submits to authority and then challenges it. And Paul says the church will be noted by this. Christians will be noted by this, by how they respond in those situations. Now, let's move on. The second way that we display the transforming grace of God in our lives is by, number two, serving selflessly in a self-serving age. Serving selflessly in a self-serving age. At the end of verse one, uh, he, 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 tells, he tells Paul, to, he, Paul tells Titus to remind them to be ready for every good work. Now that phrase good work is repeated a few times in this whole chapter. And so uh, we get the sense that Paul is intentionally repeating it and echoing it. What he wants the Christians to know is, yes, absolutely, you're saved by grace through faith alone, but that faith is never alone. True faith always leads to good works. Transforming grace is displayed by a readiness to do good works and serving others selflessly. So what he's talking about is this, this daily posture of service to be in a willingness to provide practical help to the people around us who are in need. This includes things like giving money, assisting with uh, help or emergencies, uh, letting your neighbor borrow something, giving your time for those who could, could use it. By the way, he's contrasting here the way that Christians should, the, the, he's contrasting the way that Christians should live with the way in chapter one that we saw that the false teachers live. If you remember, at the end of chapter 1, uh, Paul says that there were these false teachers making their way into the churches uh, who were teaching a different gospel. And the way that he describes them in chapter 1 is he says that they are unfit for any good work. And so now he's coming back around towards the end of his letter in, in, in Titus uh, chapter 3 uh, and saying, but you Christians... You who are followers of Jesus, uh, on those, who, who, those who are displaying the true gospel should be ready for any and every good work. 
I love the way that Tim Keller describes the dichotomy between these two. He says, sin makes us operate on this principle. Sin tells us, your life for me. I'm going to make you sacrifice for me, for my interests, for my self-image. You must sacrifice your needs to serve mine. And he says, but Jesus Christ came into the world saying, I give my life for you. My life to serve you. My life poured out for you. I sacrifice for you. Jesus says those are the two ways that you can live your life. And every single day, every single hour, you are deciding to operate on one of those two principles. And so for that reason, Paul says that the Christian is someone who needs to be ready for every good work, just like Jesus was. Now that word ready in the original language, that ready uh, has a sense, uh, it, it, it means like to be eager, to be eagerly ready. So it's about being like hungry to serve. You're eager to serve. So that means no matter how aggressive the culture might get, get against Christianity or how aggressive your enemies might get against you, we are still to aggressively pursue good work towards others. That means you labor, you eagerly labor to arrange your gifts and your talents and your time for the glory of God and for the good of others. That is the greater purpose from which you arrange uh, your life. I mean, we find ourselves investing hours of our time each week scrolling through social media or working through our favorite Netflix binge. We'll invest our gifts and talents in order to impress others. But few people will live intentionally, will live eagerly for the good of others, to serve others. You see, we are a self-serving culture. We're consumeristic, comfort chasing, where everything is oriented around self. But Paul says, no, if you belong to Christ, who gave up all his power and privilege to serve the most undeserving people, then we should be like that too. We of all people should be like that too. Now let's move into verse two for our third point. Point number three, we need to speak gently in a slanderous age. Speak gently in a slanderous age. He says, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling and be gentle. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle. Now, when Paul says to speak evil of no one, he's talking about like violent, aggressive, abusive language. All right? Now, we live in a culture that is very shame-oriented, right? I like to say we live in a culture, it's like the bastardized version of the old Eastern honor shame culture, which is a shame-shame culture that we live in, right? Everywhere you look, the news, social media, from our local cities, Facebook groups, to the highest offices in the land, the language, the hatred, the name calling just can get out of control. I'm not trying to get political here. This is just the way that it is, you know? 
everywhere that you look. I, I, I prefer watching international news because you don't get like the hostility and the biases uh, from the left and the right of like our local and national news stations. But every once in a while, like I just got to, uh, uh, you know, move to go to like our, our local news, like on KCAL or national news, and I'll switch back and forth to see what each side is, is saying. What is each side's perspective? I'll, you know, go back and forth between like, uh, like KCAL or CBS and Fox and NBC and CNN, just like going on this rotation. And, and the other day I was actually watching our um, national and local news channels and I had to turn it off because my kids were in the room. How sad is that? Like I couldn't watch the news at night because it was before my kids' bedtime and my kids were in the room. And as a parent, I'm trying to teach my kids how to speak kindly toward one another. And the adults on the TV with their suits on are using their tongues as weapons, belittling those on the other side, calling them stupid and idiots and and talking about the others like they're less than human, this us versus them mentality. And look, there's a time where we got to speak up for truth. Absolutely. There's a time where we do need to speak up, where we do need to confront, where we do need to make a bold stand for truth. But it has to be in a manner that is worthy of and befitting of the gospel as followers of Christ. In James 3, James says an unchecked tongue is like a fire. Like a fire. It's small. But if you leave it unchecked, it can set a whole forest ablaze. In that same chapter, James also calls it, he calls the tongue a deadly poison. The picture he's giving us is that words are powerful and can be used to cause great harm. Words can be used to do great evil. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is in denial, right? Like I can't remember how it felt the first time I got punched in the face, but I can remember what it felt like when the harsh words from someone I looked up to in college hit me right here. I can remember that decades later. Paul says, speak evil of no one, of no one. This includes the all-too-common sin of gossip and slander. You see, when you work, when you speak unkind words about someone, uh, like when you speak unkind words about someone rather than to them, in a spirit that is more bent on hurting them than, than in helping them, that's what gossip is. Ray Ortland describes what makes gossip so destructive, but also why we find it so enticing. He says, gossip is our dark moral fervor, eagerly seeking gratification. Gossip makes us feel important and needed as we declare our judgments. It makes us feel included to know the inside scoop. It makes us feel powerful to cut someone else down to size, especially someone we are jealous of. It makes us feel righteous, even responsible to pronounce someone else guilty. 
Gossip can feel good in multiple ways, but it is not of the flesh, or but it is of the flesh rather, not of the spirit. It robs our Lord of the, the church he deserves. It exposes the hostility in our hearts and discredits the gospel in the eyes of the world. Look, the Apostle Paul continues in this verse saying we should avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling. He's talking here about proving yourself when you were just proving yourself right just to be right. If you've been transformed by the grace of God, then when you're in a heavy disagreement with someone, your goal is not to win an argument, but to win a person. Right? To uphold their dignity in the middle of that. Because it's not about you uh, all the time. It's about the glory of God and the good of others. It's about having a disposition where you pursue unity and reconciliation. And when he says we got to be gentle, that word gentle there, uh, Paul's using that, it means like a sweet reasonableness. A sweet reasonableness. In other words, you need to think your words through intentionally. Right? Be reasonable. Don't be so driven by your passions. Don't be just driven by your anger and your frustration and your emotions, but speak, uh, but, but, but speak gent- be gentle with sweet reasonableness. reasonableness. You're not tearing others apart. Like you, That's not your aim. You don't tear others apart. Even when you need to correct somebody, when you rightly and justly need to correct somebody, you still do it with gentleness. I want you to think about this. Like God, he, he, he shows common grace to all people, right? There's the saving grace of God for believers, but then there's the common grace that he just shows all people. The common grace and patience for all people in the way that he's just patient with us, the way that he pursues us, the way that he blesses everyone in some form or fashion with many good things that we can enjoy. But that doesn't mean he gives a stamp of approval on the moral fiber of every single person. You see, when you have a posture of gentleness and love with your words, that doesn't mean that you have a stamp of approval on everything that person does. It's just simply a way of displaying the grace of God that has been given to you. It's simply a way of displaying the grace of God to another human being, treating them with the dignity that they deserve as a fellow human made in the image and likeness of God. Number four, lastly, we are to show humility in a harsh age. Show humility in a harsh age. The end of verse two, he says, remind them to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That right there, showing perfect courtesy toward all people is the exact opposite of the slandering and quarreling that Paul warned against. That word courtesy there is about placing others above yourself. It's about placing others ahead of ourselves. It's about laying down your ego and picking up gentleness. It means, it means you don't over-assert your rights, but you lay them down to serve Christ and to serve others, to be a witness uh, of the love of Christ to others. 
And he says, do this toward all people. Why does he say that? Well, first of all, he says that and he clarifies that because many of us want to show courtesy only to people who are like us, right? We want to show courtesy to people who maybe look like us or sound like us or act like us. And so he clarifies, look, you got to show courtesy, but do it toward all people because we need to be challenged on the all people part. Why? Because God desires all men to be saved. First or Second Timothy 2, that's what it says. God desires all men to be saved. And so we live our lives displaying the transforming grace of God for all to see. All right? We are to image that grace, represent that grace. Now, my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that you would hear the Lord calling you through this text this morning to put his grace in your life on display for all to see. That you would see him calling us to be out front in our communities to proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ and to live in such a way that those who have no real awareness of Christ are drawn in by our conduct. They're drawn in because of how we live, by how we display that grace. They're drawn in to come and see that the Lord is good, to come and drink from the well of life and experience the loving kindness of God themselves. Now, before we end and, and we pray, um, I want us to I, I want to actually lead us in communion together. All right. Now, those of you that have been uh, with us uh, before quarantine, you know that once a month, uh, 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 like we take communion every single uh, Sunday here when we're gathering physically in person. But once a month, uh, what we would do is um, we would. Uh, we would all take the elements at the same time. We would drink at the same time and eat at the same time as a way to sort of amplify our togetherness in the gospel. I just think it's fitting for us. It just feels fitting for us that every time we're gathering in person, I, I just think we should just do that every time we gather. All right? And so I'm going to have uh, the, the ushers uh, pass around uh, the communion elements right now. And I'm going to ask you to hold on to those elements. And if you're watching through the live stream, if you're not with us in person, uh, my, my encouragement to you as we're passing this around is to just prayerfully consider uh, just the beauty of the gospel and about Christ's sacrifice uh, for you. You might not have the elements in prayer uh, of the bread and the, the, the cup, but you can still meditate on that and rehearse that in prayer if you're streaming online. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that the Christian life is a life of remembrance, right? It's a life of constantly rehearsing and echoing and remembering the goodness of God. We remember again and again and again the gospel of Jesus, that he has taken us out of darkness and into marvelous light, that Jesus is not only our model of grace, but he's also our sacrifice that made grace possible. He, more than anyone, was ready for every good 
work that the Father appointed him to do, even to the point of submitting himself to corrupt authorities, being accused by them falsely. He stood silent before their accusations, before their insults. He received blow after blow after blow. He endured this abuse minute after minute, hour after hour, all the way to his cross where he would hang there in our place for our sins to offer the invitation of God's grace for all people. So I want to read uh, to you guys um, sort of our normal tradition is to read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when we receive communion. And Paul is writing here to Tim, or not to Timothy, but he's writing to a church in uh, Corinth at the time. And uh, he's writing with them uh, in this place in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 to remind them of the uh, importance and just the supernatural gravity of the communion meal. And he tells this church, I received from the Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he says, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want you to take the bread now and eat it in remembrance of Jesus' body, which was broken for you. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, In the same way, Jesus, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So I want you to take the cup now and drink it, remembering Christ's blood that was spilt for you. Verse 26, he says, For often as you eat that bread, as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, as often and as many times as you do that, as often and as many times as Christians have been doing that throughout the centuries, we are proclaiming the Lord's death, how he served us in his death and the power of his resurrection. We are proclaiming that until the day he comes. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.